From New York City, this is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. And to get us in the mood for this episode, in which we're going to talk about the 1934 classic, The Thin Man, Matt and I and all of our respective loved ones have treated ourselves to a stay in a couple of impossibly sprawling hotel suites in Manhattan, where we're just lounging around, sipping highballs. This is this is cruel. This is a podcast. If you just play along, no one can actually see that we're huddled next to the crib in one of your children's bedrooms. Can't you just hear the clink of the glasses and the witty repartee of the glamorous guests in the room? I, I absolutely cannot. Uh, <laughs> is that? Wait, do I hear it? Oh no, that's one of the children screaming. <laughs> Forever. In honor of The Thin Man, we're going to be recommending some other movies about a topic near and dear to our hearts. Drinking! And all of the movies will be available to render stream right now, but before that, pour yourself a line of martinis, at least five or six, and get ready to solve a mystery or two, because we're going to talk about The Thin Man. Pretty girl. Yeah, she's a very nice type. You got types? Only you, darling. Lanky brunettes with wicked jaws. Leo, compliments to see you. Who is she? Oh, darling, I was hoping I wouldn't have to answer that. Come on. Well, Dorothy is really my daughter. You see, it was spring in Venice. I was so young, I didn't know what I was doing. We're all like that on my father's side. By the way, how is your father's side? Oh, it's much better, thanks. And yours? Say, how many drinks have you had? This will make six martinis. All right. Will you bring me five more martinis? Leo, line them right up here. Yes. Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit is, if the name didn't clue you in, a podcast about movies and television series that are available to stream. It's also a podcast in which we let you tell us what we should review. At the end of each episode, we give you three different films or sometimes TV series and let you vote on which one you'd like to hear us talk about. Uh, in honor of Warner Archives kind of merging with Filmstruck and a partnership with TCM, Turner Classic Movies, uh, which is bringing a whole bunch of Hollywood classics to a streaming service that you probably already know has a lot of art and foreign films and Criterion titles, uh, we decided to do three picks from the first round of TCM Selects titles on Filmstruck. Uh, they were not what you would call lesser known fair. <laughs> There's like Casablanca. Um, so for our three options, we tried to pick some, like a mix, and at least one that we hadn't seen. Uh, of course, you did not vote for that one. Uh, we went with... Jacques we made it very clear which one we wanted, and the listeners gave us a resounding, no thanks. Yes. They're like, we don't really We care don't care. We no, they really don't. We came in last place. So the three options were Jacques Tourneur's 1943 horror film, Cat People, the 1942 Betty Davis drama, Now Voyager, and the 1934 detective film, The Thin Man... Uh, and as Matt mentioned, despite our expressed preferences for Now Voyager, got totally creamed in the poll, coming in third, while The Thin Man took the lead and kept it. The Thin Man is based on a novel by, of the same name by Dashiell Hammett, who's best known for this hard-boiled detective fiction. Uh, the Thin Man, which would go on to spawn a six-film series and a television show, is far from hard-boiled. I'd say it is at best lightly and elegantly poached. Uh, <laughs> The, the film that was adapted from it uh, in 1934 was directed by W.S. Van Dyke and starred William Powell and Myrna Loy as Nick and Nora Charles. 
and it is fizzily unconcerned with getting serious, uh, even when dead bodies start showing up. The thin man of the title is a kind of testy inventor named Clyde Winant, played by Edward Ellis, uh, which is who the movie starts with. His disappearance, as noticed by his daughter Dorothy, played by Maureen O'Sullivan, is the mystery that propels the film forward. Though once Nick and Nora make an appearance, maybe about 11 minutes in, it, the movie becomes mostly an excuse to spend time in their very pleasant company. Nick is a retired detective who gets kind of reluctantly pulled slash goaded back onto the job by his wife. His wife, Nora, is a socialite and heiress, and the two seem to mostly spend their time hanging out with their very cute dog, Asta, uh, and drinking heavily and enthusiastically. Um, the first sequence uh, of the two of them together finds Nora ordering six martinis together, lined up, in order to catch up to her husband, who's gotten a head start on her at the bar. So Matt, watching this movie for the first time in quite a while, it had been ages, uh, I realized that aside from a particular detail involving the suit uh, that's like a clue, um, I barely remembered the actual mystery in The Thin Man at all, uh, though all of the scenes of the Charles's marriage I remembered very well. So did you have anything like that same experience? What do you think of the actual and fairly convoluted mystery that, uh, that the, the film is theoretically about? Oh, it's incredibly convoluted. Uh, it, I, I don't know if there's ever been a better movie, a mystery movie, that where the mystery was less interesting or that you ended up caring less about it. Like, who cares? Who cares who did it? It almost doesn't even matter. It's just the excuse to get to hang out with Nick and Nora, who are totally delightful. No, I, I didn't remember anything about the mystery. And I'll tell you what, I watched the movie, what, three days ago? I don't remember anything about it now. <laughs> if you quizzed me on it, I mean, I know there was who got killed. Uh, I know who the Thin Man is. It's right. not Nick Charles, which it is, is a common misconception for people who haven't seen it. You know, he's not the title character, even though all the movies that followed had that in the title. Right. Sort of a very strange quirk of the series is that it's named after uh, a victim instead of the hero. And so they made a bunch of movies and they kept <laughs> calling them Thin Man movies, even though he wasn't in them. It's which kind is... of a Frankenstein's monster type. Situation. Yes, yeah, exactly. Situation. Exactly. So, yeah, the the mystery is totally convoluted. It It almost doesn't matter who did it. Or why? I mean, the end of the movie, I don't remember the exact lines, but, you know, at the end, there's this very, you know, the very famous, very cliched scene of everyone who mm -hmm. could have possibly done it is gathered around a large table. They're all having a, a very cordial meal where... It's a very glamorous dinner party. An incredibly glamorous dinner party to involve, you know, like, accusations of murder. But I think even uh, Nick says at one point, like, like Nora says to him, like, what are you talking about? Do you know what you're saying? And he's like, nah, I'm just making this up as I go. <laughs> and that's, that's sort of the fun of it. I think that's almost the pleasure of the movie is that it, it invites you to not care or it invites you not to not to get too invested in that. And it tells you this is a this is a movie. This is a lark. This is a chance to enjoy the company of these very erudite, very witty, very charming characters and their adorable dog. And it I don't know. I, I, I think that if we were to care for the mystery, it almost would be a weaker movie because why 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 waste our mental energy and our, divert our attention away from these this one of the all time great movie couples like just enjoy their company. Yeah, I mean, I, I will say there are some of the classics of film noir have extremely convoluted Absolutely. Uh, stories that you also don't care about. At yes, the end. Uh, right, I mean, the, Dashiell Hammett was kind of an expert in the art of the convoluted mystery, and Raymond Chandler as well. Yep. Right? There was the famous "The Big Sleep" uh, 
I don't know if it's it's just anecdotal, but where he's asked who killed the chauffeur in the big sleep, and he was kind of like, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, in the Maltese Falcon is famously right. like nobody just knows. Yeah. In, in the circles, yes. yeah, um, which I really enjoy. I enjoy like letting go of the the kind of thing that's theoretically driving the narrative and to kind of let it all unfold. Uh, and I really enjoy that here. One thing I will say about the mystery. And the kind of the Winant family, as we see mm-hmm. it, and all of mm-hmm. their kind of uh, very sketchy hangers-on. Yes. <laughs> they have quite a few. Yes. Including Cesar Romero mm-hmm. as a, a kind of Lothario uh, who has married, maybe married, uh, the ex-wife, right. Charles Winant's ex-wife. Right. Um, I just, I, it was such a, a kind of nice counterpoint to this very idyllic marriage that the rest of the movie is about right like you have this couple that just seems to have they seem to understand each other be on each other's wavelength so perfectly and they have uh these two actors who have some of the greatest chemistry i think that gets captured on screen and and then they're going into this whole story about someone who is like cheated on his like very kind of grasping ex-wife and then his mistress is also you know like it's just all all of these people just see like all are all out to get each other yeah, it's total sleaze yeah. and very tawdry and that that it just mostly seems there to kind of like contrast with the uh, the relationship of our main characters which is quite delightful that's a really good point i hadn't thought about that but you're absolutely right there we have this very lovely example of a functioning relationship and it's counterbalanced by everyone else in the movie who is a total mess. <laughs> yes. And it really does. I mean, the thing that I always think about when I watch it is just how it puts a lie to the idea that, oh, you can't have a good movie about a happy couple or a happy marriage, that there has to be drama or tension or any. There's no tension in this marriage. Like the, the most tension is another thing that I love about it, which is that like Nick doesn't really want to be a detective, but it's Nora who keeps goading him into like getting in trouble and solving the mystery and having a lot of adventure. Right. She wants to see it. Yeah. Yeah, whereas it, like the stereotypical thing, even to this day, is like the the scolding, nagging wife who wants the husband to settle down, and like that's not what she's about at all. She wants the opposite. She wants to have fun. She wants to have adventure. We, I, she's upset that he stopped being a detective to be rich with her, and I just think that is so refreshing that she gets to have fun and she wants to have fun, and she's sort of like goading him into basically being an alcoholic detective, and I think that that is. <laughs> Absolutely marvelous. There's that one scene in which uh, there's an intruder in the house and she gets like knocked out in the scuffle and then she gets very angry and she's like, I wanted to see you. I knew you could take him. Yes. Why did you knock me out? I mean, in the, I guess this is, I guess it's very sort of very early post code or during code. It's not really quite pre code. I think it is pre code. Is it? Well, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's not very salacious, but there, to me, like that scene has this strong like intimation of like, this is this was hot. This was like a turn on for me to watch you beat up this guy. Why did you there <laughs> knock are, me out? I mean, that is an undercurrent. That's like you know it, uh, the the idea that they have a great sex life is kind of this undercurrent throughout, even when they are sleeping in separate beds. In yes, very... which is another hilarious <laughs> aspect of these. I mean, like the movie. ending sequence in the train is like as close as it comes to you know like yes. acknowledging uh, a sex life. And uh, I don't know. I mean, like, that seems to be as much a part of this, right? Mm-hmm. That they are, it's not just that they're happy, that there's something like electric between them. Yeah, they have yeah. chemistry. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, I, I think it's like the, the classic thing of whether it was pre-code or not, you couldn't really show anything. And so, the, so it becomes this sort of like the feisty dialogue. It's like they're not allowed to have physical chemistry, so they get to have verbal chemistry. And like you said already, I think that there's 
very few actors in history that have had better verbal chemistry. But it's not just verbal. I mean, they do have like these flirtatious things, like where he like uh, he he like points at something on her that she's got like a spot on her dress, and then he pokes her nose, and then she like elbows him in the ribs, and it's just like how often do you see couples that are just like into each other like this in a movie? Yeah, it's still you know seventy years later, it's so rare. It's yeah. just like. I don't know. The other thing about the movie is it just seems so easy. It just seems – they make it seem effortless. I mean that's part of why we love Nick and Nora is that Nick literally expends no effort. Like yes. <laughs> he, being a detective, solving this incredibly convoluted mystery that literally if you ask someone after it's over to explain it, you couldn't. He can solve it while he's had eight martinis. Sure. But and I mean like his biggest venture, right? Like the biggest – the most effort he puts into this is going to look in the – uh in Wynant's uh, right. lab or whatever And then the dog is. figures it out. And the dog out. figures it out. <laughs> right, exactly. The dog <laughs> solves it, which is another absolutely wonderful thing about this is Asta and just the role he plays in the film. But just this idea that, that it's so – like the movie's vibe matches that character. It has this effortless, easygoing charm. And yeah, it's just – I don't know. It's – I was reading about it after I watched it. It's like they shot it in two weeks. Yes. Which and is a lot of like first takes. Mind boggling yeah. that, that you could get this much. I don't know that it, a movie could feel this just like sort of effortless and have that perfect sort of energy and charisma on the, as you're saying, like first takes and it shot in two weeks. It's really pretty miraculous. It's not like one of my favorite movies ever, but just the like achievement of it is so impressive yeah and i think that uh one of the things i appreciated especially watching it this time what what were the ways in which the movie just kind of emphasizes the trust between the two of them Mm -hmm. uh not just that uh she trusts her husband to be able to pull these things off you know like but also even like this scene in which she kind of bursts in on him comforting dorothy and doesn't right. isn't like what's going on here. Yes. She they like How there was never you? yeah there's never any doubt no. between the two of them no. that like anything would yeah. And I think that there's something about that that like is just so refreshing because it's such a like it's such an expected beat to be like That's another stock any any movie about a married couple there has to be again it's got to be drama and tension. The wife has to think the husband is cheating and and like you said that scene happens and and she's just like whatever you know. I, I mean, she is Nora Charles. Like, who's going to cheat on Nora Charles? Yeah, yeah. Let's be fair. As, as she, you know, she says as much herself. Yeah, She's I like, mean, I'm a real catch. She is. <laughs> she is a real catch. Um, I, it was, I, I think, like, it is interesting to think about this movie coming out, like, probably, like, the height of the Depression. I mean, Prohibition had just been repealed. And uh, I think in the book, in the novel, there are, uh, making do with, like, illicit liquor. And uh-huh. here they can drink freely. But, like... Uh, to think about the context of that in both ways, like both the boozing uh, just feels like, you know, like, like the prohibition had just been lifted, mm-hmm. uh, that, that they're just like jumping so fully back on board. But also, I think there is there are so many ways in which the like, just effervescent lightness of this and the kind of like easy luxury these characters live in, like blissful luxury. Like when you think about watching that in the context of the depression, like it also makes so much sense just like it is this purest kind of escapism Mm -hmm. in that it is this fantasy of just having this like idle rich life right right and just like living for pleasure right it is one of the fascinating aspects of this movie and a lot of screwball comedies of this era is that if you i mean there are absolutely movies about the depression and about the hard times but you could make a pretty extensive filmography and a very a, a very respectable the great you know great films of the period 
where the depression does not exist, you know, like that you could just watch, especially if you're watching the comedies, like they're all about these fabulously wealthy people who are not just rich. They never work. They don't have to work. It's just like the thing that so many people were worried about daily is just like the next, you know, the next week's paycheck or surviving day to day. It's just like, it's not even a consideration. I mean, here they've inherited money. Like Nick, uh, Charles was a detective. He quit his job to be rich. Essentially, right. he quit his job because he did not need to work anymore. Because the the, the Nora's somebody died and left them a ton of money and and uh, property and yes. like he takes care of it. Right, he, says. he is like uh, managing managing their estate. Right, I guess. but we never see him actually do any work in the movie <laughs> that involves that at all. Now, granted, they're sort of on vacation here. I guess. I mean, there's a part. I feel like he he said he makes some mention of like they've gone there, gone to New York to like get away from all the partying in San Francisco, which is seems like a very ineffective trick in this case. Like not really working out. No. Can we talk a little bit about Asta? Asta is a spectacular dog. I would argue that Asta is the greatest character in the history of cinema. That's uh, it's a bold, it's a bold statement. Who's better than Asta? I mean, I, I, I can't come argue. up, come I, up with a better. You know, character. I, you're right. You're I right. love the way Asta is introduced, like pulling at the leash, just like how do you explain who this dog is? It's just like the anti Nick in a way. Like Nick is the one who's just like soused and wandering and just late. And Asta is like the one making the beeline, which comes back again later. The very consistent characterization of this dog <laughs> that he comes when they, when they're searching. And as you said, they're searching in the office or the lab or whatever. And, and Asta is the one who makes the discoveries. Like he's the, he's yes. the one who has purpose and drive <laughs> unlike his owner. Right. Which and I they're just kind too. of like, like weaving around unsteadily on their feet yes. and into the a solution for the mystery. Which is good because let's face it, if, if they had a dog that was needy, that dog would be dead a hundred times over because they yes. couldn't care for they, a, a dog. Yes, they absolutely could not. No. I do like the part where uh, Nick kind of threatens someone with Asta who is like hiding under a table. Yes. Yeah. The same like, scene with the intruder. Yes. Yeah. Um, and Asta, not going to do that. But yeah. I mean, he's clearly the smartest character in the film as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, what, is your favorite scene in this movie because i particularly love the scene that not related to mystery solving at all in which uh on christmas day nick is shooting with the air rifle yes with the air <laughs> rifle <laughs> it is just like a perfect sequence uh that's a very good scene i love the ending because it is so willfully like uh, it's like a middle finger to anyone who's trying to think that they have the the, the, the mystery solved or even that the mystery mattered i mean where where Nick is like openly acknowledging that not only does he not know who did it as he's solving it, quote unquote, but that it's just like he's making it up as he goes and then he gets it right anyway. I just think that that I don't know. I just love the idea of like that times gathering everyone together into a very posh dinner party to expose a killer. I think it's just that's always the right way to solve a crime. Wearing a tuxedo, sitting around a dining table with like 20 people who are all disgusting it's wonderful. Yeah. What I really enjoy about that sequence beyond uh, Nora's evening gown, which is a beautiful She has some gown. several very beautiful dresses some, in this Yeah, she has movie. amazing outfits. Is just how inc- like hilariously cruel uh, news, serious news is broken to Dorothy. <laughs> it's like, I'm like, this is a really, considering she's supposedly an old family friend, a really like terrible thing to do. <laughs> in their defense, though, they're very drunk. They're extremely they're drunk. They're drunk all the time. Yeah, we didn't even talk about, I mean, like, Nick is introduced uh, instructing bartenders as to the correct way to shake a cocktail. <laughs> Teaching the bartenders. Yes. Uh, but also, I mean, frankly, drinking six martinis, I, I would be slurring and a disaster. I mean, I would be dead. Uh, yeah. <laughs> 
let's be real. But um, and also I, I like that in their their morning after a hangover routine, uh, Nora has uh, I guess an ice pack that she ties to her head. Yes, just like very fetching. She's- and I think you also get the sense she's used to this. This oh, is yes. not the first time she's done this. You know, like this is the, like you said, it's a routine. This yep. is the hangover routine. No, they're just very much aspirational figures to be. Yes. I mean, you, you mentioned the depression aspect. And I think at that point they were even more aspirational and more fantastical and more desirable. But now 70 years later, I mean, it's just like they're rich. They love each other. They've got great chemistry. They got an awesome dog. They drink all the time and they solve mysteries. And they just flutter and, back and forth yeah, around they the have country. A great time. Like, yes. what is not to enjoy about this? <laughs> and what is not to aspire to? Yeah. No, it's it's a pretty dreamy movie. And yeah. I think in that way, uh, you know, uh, we, we spoke a little bit about the, the leads. But, like, I think in that way that also just, like, appreciates its main it's its main actors so much and the, how they are on screen together. Yeah. The only thing I would say is that the one knock I, I always feel is like that whenever they're not on screen, the movie is just like takes a nosedive. And it right. starts with like 10, 12 starts, minutes without yeah. them at all. Like right. it starts with whining and it, it starts with this conspiracy about the secret and the whatever he's hiding. It's like, who cares? Yeah. Especially once they appear, you're like, why did we spend all that time with other people? It's a very roundabout way to come around to especially as this movie if you will forgive me for saying this about a film classic served essentially as a kind of pilot for you know like right. they went on to birth this whole stream of lucrative sequels the thin man cinematic universe exactly uh that it is it's striking that the movie does not start with its main characters but starts by just kind of like taking this very sideways route into a story that, as as we've discussed, really doesn't matter all that much. No, I mean, it's sort of one of the interesting things about it. Again, it's not called Nick and Nora. It's called The Thin Man, and it starts with The Thin Man. It's almost like it doesn't realize, as like as they're making it, it almost like feels like, and I know it's based on a, on a book, but it almost feels like they discovered that that was what the movie was about while they were making it, like in the process of it, but it was yeah. too late to go back and shoot a different introduction because they only had two weeks to make the whole movie. Right, and uh, Dash Lamb only wrote one novel about this. All of the sequels were from, you know... Just uh, inspired by... Just inspired by. I know. know that is sort of surprising given, as you said, how many things there's a radio show and a TV show and six movies and a musical, I think, on Broadway. Yeah, that it was just one book. It, and it does seem like a, it would lend itself to, you know, sure. It makes sense as a TV show to me because who cares what the mystery is? It's just about you just love those characters. Yeah. And, and love the idea of accidentally almost solving mysteries. Uh, even though they get in the way of your drinking, yes. as Nick says, really puts you behind on your drinking. That's right. <laughs> well, all right. That is The Thin Man. You don't need us to tell you The Thin Man is great, but it is great. And it is streaming on Filmstruck. All right. Let's do some cue shots. Let's recommend some other movies about drinking. And before we do that, we just want to uh, <clears throat> set the ground rules here very quickly. But even before we do that, Allison, I have a question that yep. I'm just curious about. What is your favorite drink? Oh, I, I mean, this is going to make me sound like I'm an aspiring film noir person, That's but okay. I drink rye on the rocks. Mm. Uh, usually, my basic go-to is bullet rye on the rocks. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't really like uh, any any cocktails. They're mm-hmm. too sweet, usually. Not uh, even a, a, a whiskey cocktail? A Manhattan and old-fashioned? I don't old-fashioned, yeah. but I mean, these days it just feels like, why get in the Why waste? <laughs> yeah, why are we always wasting precious the time? alcohol. Yes. That's fair. Yeah. How about you, Matt? What is I mean, your drink? We're, this, no wonder we've done this for so many so many years. We just get along. I mean, that's the same. I'm, I don't. I don't need to be rye. I'm not yeah. even that picky. Is it brown? <laughs> Is it whiskey? It's a whiskey drink. Yeah. I on mean, the rocks or neat? Um, it depends on the alcohol. If it's really good alcohol, have it neat. If yeah. it's if I'm 
cheap, then I'll have it on the rocks. Fair enough. I think Nick Charles would approve of that yeah, approach. So. How much am I spending and how much how much do I have to disguise it? No, I, I you know, whiskey, scotch, bourbon. Yeah. Doesn't matter. Yeah. I like all of those I, too. I, I, I'm, I'm, I just, you know, when I drink the bottle, I go buy a new bottle and I don't ever <laughs> buy the same one twice. I just like trying lots of different kinds. Yeah. Though that's a good approach. Yeah. I have like a few go-tos, but I'm not loyal to any particular brand. But yeah. I, I did, I did go from being a real bourbon person to being a bit more of a rye person. Um, I can't argue with this that. Is that. As we slowly medicate ourselves with right. alcohol in order to get by. Slowly? Well, you know, gradually. How about that? <laughs> Building over the years. <laughs> okay. So on that note, now that we've exposed our, our drinking uh, bona fides, yes. <laughs> we wanted to make it clear that this is not going to be a podcast about alcoholism. Which could be its own episode. Absolutely. Absolutely. And while you probably could argue, and God help us, if they ever remade Nick and Nora Charles, I can see the hot takes now. <laughs> Nick and Nora Charles are alcoholics and they're a bad example for society, well, I mean, et cetera, et cetera. Certainly, like if you're knocking back six martinis a night you're going above any recommended uh intake by yes. any medical professional sir. but but um i mean the movie does not make it there's no hint that that is the case i mean you could definitely right. look at their behavior and say this is the behavior of alcoholics but there are no repercussions for them yeah, other they're than doing fine they they're, look great they're doing better than fine yes they're doing fabulous <laughs> so we didn't want to do a movie uh, uh, a podcast about movies about alcoholism because that's not what the thin man is about so it's about drinking we wanted to make that clear right off the bat yes even though i feel like there are certainly at least one of my my picks alcoholism is this kind of specter lurking in the background mine too mine too yeah. but but it's but it but but they, no one ever comes out and says it. Yes. We're keeping it light is what we're saying. Ish. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I think yeah. We're, we're doing, these are all, I think all of our films are comedies or comedy-ish. Mine, mine both are. Yes. All right. There we go. Do you want me to start? Or you Why don't get... you start? All right. So uh, I figured because I did love The Thin Man rewatching it and I did love Nick and Nora particularly and I wanted to spend some more time with them. And we didn't really talk about Filmstruck during our review, but we had less time on the show. That poll was a Filmstruck poll. It was all Filmstruck choices. Yep. So I thought, well, if people, you know, are actually, you know, going to sign up for Filmstruck, try it because of our podcast. Let me at least throw in one more Filmstruck movie into here. And so that made my first pick very easy. I went with After the Thin Man from 1936. This is the first of the five Thin Man sequels. And based on a very informal Twitter poll I did, it is the one that most people think is the best, the most worth watching. I had never seen any of the sequels. I have seen none of the sequels. I had seen the original before, but never seen any of the sequels. And so I figured I'm going to watch one. And I liked it. It is not as good as the first movie overall, but it's Nick and Nora. It's William Powell. It's Myrna Loy. They are still delightful together. And I enjoyed the film as a whole. It is set immediately after the first film. <clears throat> the the first film ends with this train ride that we discussed in the review. The second movie begins with the end of that train ride. They are returning home to San Francisco just in time for New Year's Eve. And they go to visit um, uh, Nora's family. And they discover that her cousin's husband has gone missing. And then Nick and Nora find him, tell him to go home. But then on the way home, he is murdered. And Nora's cousin becomes the prime suspect. And so it is up to Nick and Nora to find the real killer, and as we discussed in the in the main review, uh, Thin Man, the first Thin Man, was shot in two weeks and is a very small film when you think about it. It's mostly in <clears throat> – it's mostly on sets and just a couple of – a handful of sets really. 
and it makes the most of what it has and it really gets by in the script and in the personality department, the raw chemistry of those characters. And After the Thin Man is definitely a bigger production. You can tell that they knew they had a hit on their hands and they were going to put a little bit more money behind it. It has more locations. It has more outdoor stuff. There's some very nice foggy, noirish nighttime scenes involving the murder and stuff like that. Um, it even has a musical number. And I, I enjoyed that about it. Um, you know, Nick and Nora, there are these very elegant, wealthy uh, socialites. They deserve a movie that matches their expansive lifestyle. The Thin Man, as lovely as it is, I don't know that it necessarily fully matches that. It does feel a little cheap in a way. I mean, but their hotel room is their hotel room is great, wonderfully sized. <laughs> but you wouldn't look at that movie and say, "Wow, they spent a lot of money no. on this movie." If you know movies at all, you say this movie is like a B movie. It's definitely made relatively on the cheap. And after the Thin Man, definitely feels like they ratcheted it up to match the characters' expensive tastes, and I like that about it. And uh, the supporting cast of the film includes a very young Jimmy Stewart. He's basically like the third or fourth lead in the film. He plays the unrequited love of the cousin. And it's it's kind of awesome to see a very young Jimmy Stewart. Oh, Nick and Nora, it's great <laughs> to see you. Yeah, welcome back. Heard you had a lot of fun in New York City and all that. It's, uh, it's really cool to see him just randomly in this movie. In terms of what I didn't like quite as much as the first film, not enough Asta. We established oh. he's like the best character. Disastrous. Well, he's in it. And there's this thing where his his wife, Mrs. Asta? What? I don't know. There's like a Mrs. Asta, and it seems like she's been two-timing him with another dog. Mm. It's a whole it's a whole thing, and that's fine, but I need more like crime-solving Asta. Like to me, I wouldn't have minded if eventually they phased Nick and Nora out and it just became Asta was like the main character. Solving crimes. Solving crimes. Perfect, perfect movie. The crime-solving dog who's owned by the two degenerate drunks. I would have no problem if that was what it was. <laughs> so that's a little bit of a step down and certainly you have to accept the fact that this retired detective keeps getting into scrapes like literally this is like a week after he solved this mystery accidentally he a week later has to solve another mystery accidentally it's kind of like die hard where it doesn't make any sense for this character to keep getting into these problems but you love the character so much you love the sort of enjoyment of watching him that you just sort of accept it so you have to kind of go along with that but if you enjoyed the thin man I would say it's definitely worth a watch. I, I can't speak for any of the other sequels. I haven't watched any of those yet. But uh, I, it is great to see more Nick and Nora. They are great together. They have some very sharp, you know, repartee. The banter is still there. Uh, I did like the scene where at the very beginning of the movie, they're getting ready to get off the train. And Nora says, are you packing? Meaning their luggage. And he's pouring a drink, a very large drink. And he says, yes, I'm putting away the liquor. Uh, and I mean, <laughs> that's a great line right there. So yeah, this one uh, is after the thin man. And I believe all of the thin man movies are now on Filmstruck. I'll double check to make sure, but they have a bunch of them. So while Allison's talking, I'll confirm that. But yeah, if you want to have like a Nick and Nora marathon, Filmstruck is the way to go. So this is after the thin man. Well, my first pick is also on Filmstruck, and it is the first film that came to mind when we said we would talk about uh, movies about drinking. It is With Nail and I, uh, Bruce Robinson's uh, semi-autobiographical 1987 comedy about two unemployed actors sharing a really terrible flat in London in the 60s. And uh, one of them is with now, played by Richard E. Grant, and the other one mm, goes unnamed on screen, is credited as I, 
uh, played by Paul McGann. And I thought of this movie in particular because there's a drinking game associated with it in which the all you do is try and keep up with what with nail drinks over the course of the movie oh no yes so um according to fansite with here is what he drinks uh <laughs> nine and a half glasses of red wine one pint of cider one shot of lighter fluid two and a half shots of gin six glasses of sherry 13 whiskeys and a half pint of ale uh, if you were to actually drink that, I think you would die, probably not even getting all the way through. Yeah. Uh, but also, Withnail does have the benefit, to his credit, of having a few days, the days right. over the, not the doing movie, this in, in an hour and a half. Yes. Minutes, yeah. But also, he does a lot of drinking off screen, so he drinks a lot more than this. This is just what we see him drink. Uh, but Withnail is a prodigious drinker of alcohol and consumer of substances. The movie actually starts out with both of these characters having come down from, I think, a multiple-day speed binge. Um, and they're both broke. They're uh, they're on the dole. They're spending all of their money on alcohol and can't really afford to uh, heat their flat, which never was also like a total disaster, disastrous mess. Uh, and neither of them seems to be getting calls from their agents or seems to be getting work. And the whole, like, the the story of this movie, as much as there is one, is that they basically finagle use of this cottage um, to get away, to go to the countryside, to refresh themselves from Uncle Monty, who's played by Richard Griffiths, who is with Nail's uh, wealthy uncle, and who, unbeknownst to I, uh, has a thing for I, and... Uh, Withnail has uh, led his uncle on to believe that I is gay and would at least uh, be, you know, welcome his advances in some way. And so a lot of the film, beyond just being about how they cannot handle being in a country cottage and have no idea how to handle the countryside, don't know how to get how to heat the place, don't know how to find food, uh, cook at one point, they they are given a live chicken and kill and cook it in a way that is extremely memorable mostly they drink they drink an astonishing amount they are very drunk all of the time including driving on the way back which does not go very well um and i think that there's really something to this movie about like what it is like to be at this point in your life when you uh are like a total mess but also there's something exhilarating about being such a mess and having nothing uh, and this movie is very kind of like, there's a real sad undercurrent to this movie in that it's literally set like three months before the end of the 60s. And there's this real funereal air over everything. It's not romantic about the 60s, but at the same time, there's this real sense of this air, this decade ending and kind of like everyone coming down from a high. And uh, and one of the, the kind of things that is uh, matching that is the idea that this friendship between these two characters... Um, as disastrous a friendship as it is, but it's like such a funny one and it's one you're so deeply invested in, uh, this friendship is going to come to an end, that one of them is going to find work and one of them is going to grow up uh, and it's not with Nail. <laughs> with Nail is not the one who is going to go off to a spectacular career. Uh, you know, Robinson based this movie on uh, his own experiences. He shared a rundown Camden flat with uh, an actor named Vivian McCarroll who did not go on to bigger things. So he acted in a few roles, but um, 
And apparently Uncle Monty is based on Franco Zeffirelli, who apparently had a lot of kind of amorous aims hmm. that Robinson was really not that interested in returning. Um, but I, I think that uh, you can sense this in the movie as well. Uh, McCarroll died, I think, when he was about 50 um, because he like of, of kind of like the side effects of how much drinking he did. Um, and that you can just kind of sense that with Nell is who was like, you know, this fantastic character um, does not is not going to go on to to greater things. But it's with Nell that the movie ends with. Uh, and I think, you know, um, on the topic that we're talking about, I was spectacularly drunk at uh, a party a few nights ago. And someone was asking, Congratulations. About, like, thank you, what the best movie endings were. And I was could not come up with any because I was too sozzled. But I will say the, the ending of this movie is just about perfect. Uh, and in that way where it's uh, it's also tremendously sad, but like not at all at the same time. Uh, and and I, I, I think that, you know, uh, as a movie about things ending as well, it manages to be a really funny comedy and sometimes a kind of mean comedy and then also a really tragic one at the same time. Uh, don't try and drink as much as with nail, please. I, we, we don't advise that here on Film Spotting SVU. We will not be responsible if you try that. Don't tell me game. what to do, mom. All right. <laughs> Actually, I would love to see you try and drink even just like nine and a half glasses of red wine in an uh, hour and a half. <laughs> that wouldn't go well for anybody. I definitely couldn't do it. Yeah, well, mm. that is with Nell and I, and it is streaming on Filmstruck. All right, a great choice. My second pick is a movie that I really loved when it came out. I have not seen it in probably at least a dozen years. It is Sideways from 2004, directed by Alexander Payne. It is the story of a pair of heavy drinking buddies, Miles, played by Paul Giamatti, and Jack, played by Thomas Hayden Church. They make a trip up to wine country to celebrate Jack's impending marriage. Miles got divorced two years ago and still hasn't gotten over it. He's working on a novel that it seems like he probably will never publish. And Jack is getting married, but he's clearly having second thoughts, or at least is not all that gung-ho about the idea. And he keeps pushing Miles to help him or also to hook up with the women they meet in wine country, particularly this lovely waitress, Maya, that Miles has met on previous trips to the area, who's played by Virginia Madsen, and then the waitress's friend, Tara, who works in a winery, played by Sandra Oh. Now, I saw this movie probably, I mean, I saw it when it came out. I might have seen it once or twice after that, but, you know, not in over a decade. I really liked it at the time. I, You know, it was it's a funny movie, and it's fun to sort of travel with these characters, and you get this lovely sort of picturesque tour of wine country it makes going to all these tastings seem kind of i don't know beautiful exotic the photography of the area is really nice and the score by ralph kent is this very jaunty jazz score and I, you know i don't think as a guy in my mid early to mid 20s i really appreciated just how sad and desperate the oh, movie yeah. is tremendously so and how much the drinking speaking of the drinking dovetails with that miles is I guess more of like an amateur expert, but a wine expert, and he's showing his friend Jack a good time, but also like teaching him how to drink wine the right way. But he's also a snob, and it's also very clear that he's drinking heavily. And again, they don't really call themselves alcoholics. No one calls them alcoholics in the movie, but I think, again, if anyone labeled them as such, you'd have a hard time arguing that that was the case. But 
that he's drinking in particular, Miles is drinking as a way to kind of drown the pain of this marriage ending badly. And so you have this very interesting contrast that I don't know that I even fully appreciated when it came out as much as I enjoyed the film between the comedy on the surface. And it is a very funny movie at times and the sort of floundering that these men are doing in their lives below the surface. And it really goes hand in hand with Paul Giamatti's performance which I thought was even better than I remembered it, the nuances of his work here, that he can simultaneously be so funny and amusing and kind of charming, but at the same time, he is such an obnoxious mm-hmm. just jerk and so pompous and full of himself. And he, Paul Giamatti just threads such a beautiful line there. And there's, I can't think of a lot of actors who could pull that off where you simultaneously feel bad for the guy because of everything he's going through. At the same time, you just want to smack him right in the face because of – also because of what he's going through and what he does. And I mean, I totally had forgotten the scene where he goes to visit his mom for her birthday. And this is the guy, this guy, he steals money from his mother. Yeah. He tells her they're going to stick around for her birthday brunch the next day and then sneaks out before she wakes up. So he doesn't even have to tell her he's not going to stay for it. And this is the hero of the film. Uh, and, In terms of the drinking aspect, a little more about that, again, the drinking and the touring of wine country is such a huge part of the film that even though the movie definitely has this sort of kind of sad, pathetic dimension to it, the movie was a huge apparent booster of tourism in the area (laughs) for a period that, you know, people saw this movie and they wanted to go to wine country. And supposedly I was reading online that it not only boosted sales of Pinot Noir, which is the is the wine that miles likes it depressed sales of merlot which very famously he refuses to drink merlot is the wine he will not drink and watching it this time it did occur to me which hadn't before that miles likes pinot noir because pinot noir is like miles he describes it at one point the grapes at one point he says they're very thin-skinned they don't like heat or humidity and they're very delicate And it's clear to me now that he's talking as much about the wine as he is about himself and that in some ways, in some bizarre, twisted way, he identifies with Pinot Noir and that is why he likes it so much. And so I honestly wasn't sure if I would like this movie, uh, you know, revisiting it. I didn't know how I would think it would hold up because I I, I wasn't sure. And I have to say I was not a fan of Alexander uh, Alexander Payne's last movie at all. But I have to say, I really liked it. I liked it even more than I expected to. And like I said, this whole dimension of just how sad the characters are. I don't know. Maybe it's me being older that it really hit me even harder this time. Uh, so, yeah, Sideways. Really liked rewatching this one. It is currently available on HBO Go or HBO Now. That's a particularly good movie about the how... Um wine fandom can be used to mask what is like alcoholism. alcoholism. Absolutely. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> and just like, just because it's being done. It is a socially like, acceptable yes, way to, to d- just highbrow. drink a ton. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Well, so my, my next pick is from a director who's really, I, I think kind of become known for having a lot of scenes of characters drinking, getting drunk, like awkward, like he makes movies about men and women and these kind of, Sometimes awkward, funny, dark interactions between them, and alcohol is absolutely the fuel for his movies. It is Hong Sang Soo, and uh, I'm going to talk about Right Now, Wrong Then, which is his 2015 film that's streaming on Fandor. He's a really prolific filmmaker who has these kind of recurring themes. He often has characters who are filmmakers. They are often not 
particularly admirable characters. Um, he makes these movies about infidelity and kind of disappointments. And also he makes them about getting utterly trashed on soju, usually soju. Um, and this movie is, uh, it, it's like a lot of his movies, a kind of two part movie. It's bifurcated. And in this case, it's, uh, it runs through the same basic story twice. Um, in both, both halves of the movie, there is a successful art film director who's played by Jung Jae Young, who, uh, travels to Suwon for a screening and Q and A at a film festival that both times we see it is like very amusingly underpopulated. <laughs> there are like five people there. Um, he gets to town a day early and he's kind of bumbling around sightseeing and he meets a woman played by Kim Min Hee, who you may also know from The Handmaiden. Uh, she's an aspiring painter. He's immediately smitten with her, even though he is uh, married and clearly also is known for being a womanizer. They have coffee. They go to her studio to look at her work. They get drunk on soju. They go to a small gathering at her friend's cafe where they proceed to drink more. And the next day he goes to his screening. Uh, and so that happens twice with like little differences that kind of tilt one of these stories more into, I would say, like uh, painful awkwardness. And then the second one into hilarious awkwardness. <laughs> but but neither one. I don't know that you could say either particularly is uh, super successful as an encounter. Um, but in both also, like the idea that drunkenness can free you up in some way. Uh, from your social burdens is like a huge part of this uh, of the movie, and in the first storyline, uh, the director flatters this flatters uh, the woman. He he looks at her painting and he tells her this. He kind of has this spiel that uh, about like you don't know where you're going, but you're finding your way. And she's very moved by it until they go drinking with her friends later, and the friend points out that that's just something he says in interviews all the time. Um. In the second story, he confesses to being married. He still declares his love for her, but he uh, is also like brutally frank about her painting. And somehow this all works out to be slightly more positive. Um, but I think in terms of the drinking in particular, uh, I will say this has some very funny scenes of drinking and of just like the ways in which it kind of peels people peels off a layer of skin and makes people vulnerable in sometimes like really unsentimental, funny ways. Um, the second, the second uh, bout of drink drinking in particular, the second half of the movie uh, involves the main character or the, the director character who in the first half of the movie insists he's never gotten drunk in his life, that he can drink a lot in the second half of the movie. He, uh, he falls down on the floor with drinking with two strangers he falls down on the floor and then he gets up gets stuck in his sweater removes his shirt squeezes his belly fat and then proceeds as the camera pans away to the horrified faces of these two women to disrobe further uh and it's so funny <laughs> um i did like um there's just this kind of like really dry ruthless sensibility to a lot of uh hong sing su's approach to comedy in these films he uh is just really kind of like brutal to these characters, especially the ones that are his, I think his relative stand in. Um, so I, you know, I, I find with his films that I tend to like them, but I also 
uh, tend to kind of blur into each other a lot because they cover so much similar story, uh, kind of story elements. But I think that right now, Wrong Men is maybe my favorite of his because I think it does all of the things that he tries out in different films in the best way. It is about the ways in which if your two options are kind of shielding yourself through lies and flattery and self-puffery or rendering rendering yourself ridiculous through brutal honesty, then maybe the second is a little better than the first, but neither of them is like a guaranteed happy ending, um, even when you obliterate yourself on Soju. Um, so that is right now Wrong Men, and it is streaming on Fandor. All right, we've got a hodgepodge of, uh, of new movies to briefly talk about here before we get to behind the eight ball we uh we, we we have one film we've both seen and then a couple of movies that one of us has seen but not the other we'll run through those very quickly the, the film we've both seen and can discuss i imagine is going to be of some interest to our listeners because it is the new wes anderson film it is isle of dogs his first stop-motion animated film since fantastic mr fox it is about this dystopian future where all the dogs in japan have been shipped off to this trash island it's literally called trash island because they all have canine flu and they're worried it's going snout to be snout fever, snout yeah. fever, and they're afraid they're going to spread it to humans. And so all the animals have been banished. And so this one little boy goes to the island. He flies himself there looking for his long lost dog. That is the premise of the film. Allison, did you like Isle of Dogs? I would say it's probably my second least favorite Wes Anderson movie. What's your least favorite? Darjeeling Limited. Okay. Yeah. I just, it, I think a lot of its charms, and it definitely has charms, yeah. uh, are familiar ones. Uh, this movie is in some ways like Moonrise Kingdom by way of Fantastic Mr. Fox. Right. Um, I think still, whenever a dog cries in this, which happens a few times, it is moving, yes. undeniably moving. Yes. Uh, and it does also, I think, like it leans into a lot of Anderson's weaknesses, including the fact that he has never been great with regards to race. Mm -hmm. And this is a movie that kind of uses a fantasy Japan in this fairly, you know, kind of like classically orientalist way. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it, not malicious, but it's certainly like not considered at all. There's no sense of awareness that you need to have that. Um, and, and, you know, I just, it feels a bit like, Anderson just kind of like not moving forward at all, but just kind of disappearing slowly inside his one of his little miniature boxes. Yeah, uh, I would I would I would largely agree. I I did enjoy parts of it. As you said, uh, the dogs cry occasionally and it's like it's I'm not I'm dead inside, but I'm not that dead inside. Yes. Like, good luck. Yeah, there's a very touching scene involving like a bath, a boy giving a dog a bath, which is just like, yeah. <laughs> That's a great scene. And there's a couple of really uh, charming scenes. And Jeff Goldblum plays a dog who always hears gossip. He's, oh, have you guys heard the rumors about X, Y, or Z? Anything involving the movie that they're, who knows where he's getting these rumors from that is amazing. And then there's also a little pug character, the Oracle. I won't spoil how the Oracle is so all-knowing, but that character, who has a very small part, is absolutely hysterical and charming and wonderful yes but yeah i did think a lot of the stuff set on japan in japan just felt very tone deaf to me yeah and some of the decisions he made is just like this is just a, these are bad calls these are very very bad strange peculiar choices that yeah. he's making including he i mean he obviously married two different ideas which was like this the dog idea like mm -hmm. he wanted to make a movie about dogs and he had this idea of like exiled dogs yes with this urge to make a movie set in japan yes and the two don't really have a lot to do with one another no 
Yeah. I mean, I think to me the the issue is like he has the dogs all speaking in English and all the Japanese characters speak in Japanese. And there is absolutely a reason, a justification you can make for having the dog speak in one language and the humans in another, and even in English, for an English audience anyway, because the movie is very much from their perspective. And so it puts you – it's interesting in the way that it puts you into the sort of – into the mind of a dog where you don't quite understand what the human standing in front of you is saying except you pick out little words here or there. And I thought that was a very interesting choice. Now, why the movie had to be set in Japan as opposed to – Portugal or Brazil or anywhere, literally anywhere on the world. I, I could not give you a, a reason other than, as you said, he loves Japanese cinema. He loves Japanese iconography and he wanted to make a movie that had a lot of it in it. But again, I thought a lot of the scenes in Japan itself were very misjudged. Yeah. And like having Greta Gerwig play this this foreign exchange, foreign student. exchange student who is like the only person apparently in Japan who like realizes that, you know, Literally trashing the the country's dogs is not a not a nice thing to do, and has to like convince everyone else that it's a bad call. That in and of itself was yeah. a very bad call. Yeah, it's not good. No. Uh, I still, you know, like as someone who has always generally liked Wes Anderson, I do feel like I don't know. It seems unfair to be like someone needs uh, a filmmaker needs to change. And because he, especially when his like voice and tone and style of things that he does are so like clear and have always been so well established. Sure. But I do feel like you should grow as a person to at least have some more awareness of things that um, have always been blind spots for you. Sure. You know, to like maybe not. I just that was I think the part for the like of this movie that was like most difficult for me was just to be like, you never really like has nothing penetrated whatever kind of like artistic bubble you've created around yourself right i don't disagree with any of that but it's like to me even more fundamentally you know he doesn't need to grow or whatever but he's making the same movie over and over again sure. that gets boring sure like there there's an aspect where it's just like show me something new take your technique take your your style your tone your things that you like to do and do something a little bit different as you said there's a lot about this movie that feels very familiar well it's caught in this kind of uh this always like uh like nostalgic juvenile point of view right right like this kind of uh deliberate naivete and uh children are often like the ones who are like especially in this movie they're the ones who have the purest of course uh, ethical point of view always and, and yeah there's a certain point where you start to get kind of frustrated with that but I, I'm more hot or cold on his movies than you are in general, yeah. but I thought Grand Budapest Hotel was like his masterpiece. I loved that movie, and mm. so to me, this was a this was like a big letdown for me personally. Yeah, well, uh, it still, as we said, offers a few pleasures, but it's, yeah, it's a I'd very mixed bag. I could give it a very, very mild recommendation, but mm -hmm. no better than that. Okay, uh, let's talk about some of these other movies we have seen. Do you want to very briefly talk about Unsane? Yes, Steven Soderbergh's iPhone movie, and also his Gaslighting movie. Uh, you know, it's funny. I saw this over a week ago, and I've still been kind of sorting out how I feel about it. I do think that there's something about the look of the iPhone and the kind of flatness of like everything being in focus that really works for this storyline. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if it's like the new red camera. I know he's like been going all. All in on this. He's like iPhone. I'm never going to make a future. Yes, I'm never going to make another movie. No, I don't know if camera. it's like really a perfect uh, camera. Well, then why not just use a real camera? Um, but uh, Claire Foy in this is great. Uh, but I also do feel like this. It's it's the script is not great. It's uh, it, it not just in like requiring a lot of like leaps of faith with regard to how certain things happen, but also. 
I think in kind of like leaning into there, there's one scene that I keep thinking about, which is like very effective in the moment, this confrontation scene. But uh, it also feels like in ways that I really bother me now, like think piece bait. Basically, mm-hmm. it felt like it was written so that someone on the Internet could write a piece about why it's so meaningful. Uh, and I, there's something kind of like cynical about that, of the feeling of it mm-hmm. uh, that I think, I don't know. I, I, it's it's a movie that I don't think really earns a lot of the the big themes that it it kind of wears with regard to gestures towards relevance. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think every movie needs to be relevant, but this one seems to really want to be. All right. Well, I didn't see that one, but I did see Pacific Rim Uprising. Mm. Mm. I did not see that. Uh, yeah. So this is the sequel to the Guillermo del Toro Pacific Rim. He's his name is on the film as like a producer. I don't think he had anything to do with it. If you look on his Twitter page, he has not tweeted about this movie one time in like two months. I think he tweeted one thing about the movie, which was like a fan made a Lego version of the trailer. And he tweeted that. And he had not tweeted the last I looked a few days ago. He hadn't tweeted anything about this movie. And I think that kind of, to me, that's a, that's a, that's a big glaring warning sign uh, to me. And it definitely feels like he had nothing to do with it because it just – I mean I wasn't a huge fan of the first movie. But at least that movie was kind of weird and it felt like a, a filmmaker was involved. And this – And it, it felt like a movie that was like about, for whatever it's worth, like a kind of love letter to kaiju movies. Yeah. This to me – I mean this feels much more mercenary. It's like we have this property – and we can make another one. We have all the – we've already designed all the characters and we already have all the costumes. It's like, let's make another one. So, um, I mean, the only thing I can say in its favor is John Boyega is the new star. He plays the son of Idris Elba's character who was in the first film. And you could do worse in this life than have a movie with John Boyega as the star. He's sure. a really charming, likable guy. He's very charismatic. Guy. He's very charismatic. And he's pretty good in the movie given what he has to work with. And, uh, you know, like a world where John Boyega gets to star in huge blockbusters is a world I want to live in. I hope he gets to do more films of this type, I guess, or whatever he wants to do. But, I mean, he's still basically just like a guy in a movie where there's big robots and big monsters. And, I mean, there's a couple of mildly clever twists in terms of the story. But, I mean, it almost bears no – like, there's almost no way to even convince yourself. You would have to be as drunk as Nick Charles watching this movie to convince yourself that what you're seeing is even close to looking like like live action, quote-unquote. Sure. You know, there are these real people in the movie, like John Boyega, and then they cut away to robots and and monsters fighting. And it's like – it really is, like, very cartoonish. It is hard to convince yourself you are – and then you go, well, why am I watching a live-action movie? Why don't I just watch a cartoon? Like if I'm going to watch a cartoon, let a cartoon be a cartoon. Then it could be even more outlandish and more extreme and fun and silly and weird and bizarre. It's like constraining a cartoon to the rules of reality makes it less fun. Sure. So to me, it's like – it is is definitely not worth going out of your way to see. It is definitely a movie that is – People are going to watch on an airplane, fall asleep in the middle of, wake up and watch the last 20 minutes and be like, well, that was a movie. fine. A yeah, movie that, that, that movie exists. Yeah. yeah. So that's a that's a non-recommendation for me. All right. Well, the last movie I'm going to talk about briefly is yeah. Ready Player One. And mm. I will say this to Ready Player One's credit, um, that it has a lot of sequences that are extremely, you know, computer imagery filled, yes. right? Uh, and they don't look like cartoons. They look... For the most part, like in a way that is really striking compared to w- after like watching a lot of movies recently in which there's this kind of 
the physics aren't quite right and it, yeah. like you know like of even marvel movies which clearly spend a lot of money on those sequences uh his just uh steven spielberg's this young man steven spielberg his uh stevie stevie uh certainly has like knows how to direct these sequences yes. in ways that give them a physicality and an excitement uh that just like you know you it's it's there is a way to direct them so it doesn't just look like you're watching a cutscene in a video game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is, like the, the action sequences in, in Ready Player One look great. I do feel like it doesn't really overcome its source material, which has some immense limitations. Right. And uh, especially, I think what's most interesting about this movie is that in ways you feel like Spielberg is kind of warring with the source material, especially towards the end uh, with regards to trying to figure out like how to how to make whatever struggle the characters are going through have meaning, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because all of this, all of the story is about uh, I, everyone in the world competing in this game that right. was left behind by this tech mogul so that they can have, be the one, the winner gets control of the uh, VR internet, basically, that everyone uses to escape from their horrible lives. Um, and I think that, that it's been a long time now. It's been a while since Spielberg's done like a pure kind of like popcorn movie. And I think what's so interesting about this movie in ways that have very little to do with, I think what the movie theoretically aims to give you is that it's a popcorn movie in which you kind of feel like the, the, the director making it is like this storyline really overvalues entertainment and escapism. Mm. (laughs) Like like he doesn't buy what the source material is trying to tell you. Mm. Uh, and so that there's a tension there that is interesting, even though I don't think the movie in the end is like very is totally successful mm-hmm. or even like I would say majority is successful. But, you know, that's Spielberg. Yeah. He's got some stuff going on. So uh, I'm looking forward to seeing that one. I, I'm cur- very curious about it. it. I'm seeing that this week. So we'll we'll see what what how that goes. But, yeah, that's Stevie Spielberg. That kid's got a future. <laughs> All right, let's get to Behind the 8-Ball here, where we wrap up the show by giving you some recommendations, uh, movie recommendations. Three new films on streaming, two listener recommendations that both of uh, that are sent to us from you guys to our email address, svu at filmspottingsvu.com, and one film chosen blindly by number from our My Lists. Now, also, before we get to that, Allison, we had a contest on our last episode. We did. Yes. We did a giveaway yes. of two Blu-rays of mm-hmm. Oscar films. Mm-hmm. Uh, get Out and I, Tanya. Mm-hmm. We have two winners, mm-hmm. and you each will get uh, one one Blu-ray of each. Um, I, Tanya, by the way, Get Out was already available on Blu-ray and digital. I, Tanya is now available for digital rental and purchase, as well as DVD and Blu-ray. So if you're a fan of that movie, it's out there now. Um, but I wanted to say congrats to Neva in Lincoln, Nebraska, and John in Monterey, Massachusetts. You are two winners. I've sent you emails, um, but congrats, and thank you for sending your recommendations, and thank you everyone for yes. sending your recommendations. We had a lot, of, a lot. A lot of a lot of entries in that contest. We have a lot of listener recommendations to yes. share over the next couple of episodes, yes, which is great. Yes, and we really appreciate it, and there's some really great ones in there, and yes. I will be reading uh, Neva and John's uh, in my behind the eight ball. Okay, cool. So do you want to go first? Yeah, why don't I go first? All right, let's start with three new releases on streaming. Okay, first up, new to Amazon is Il Mare. 
Okay, Matt. Uh, here's the plot of Ilmari. I'm ready. Uh, there's a seaside house. Yeah, Two protagonists are living there. Yeah, they realize they're living two years apart in time. Whoa. But they're able to communicate well, in letters in yeah. their mailbox. This sounds like a lake house kind it of situation. It is. The what? movie that became the lake house, what? I was going to ask. I know. This is a Korean film. The um, extremely sentimental, but no less enjoyable, uh, kind of time travel romance wow uh, that the lake house was i didn't on. know that was a remake yeah so uh you can check that out now it is on amazon il mare, il mare. uh new to hulu is blade of the immortal um the new uh takashi Miike movie for now probably he's made i was gonna say. two or three <laughs> since then uh but the 2017 takashi Miike movie uh mm-hmm. starring takuya kimura uh my favorite uh former boy bander from japan there are plenty but he he is my favorite from smap um as an immortal samurai i don't know there's a lot of fighting and things it's supposed to be a great action movie uh and that is now on hulu and finally also new to hulu is jane uh brett morgan's documentary about primatologists and anthropologists jane goodall uh, many people felt like this was robbed when it wasn't nominated for a uh, best Oscar document for our documentary. Um, but it is made up of a lot of unseen footage from the National Geographic archives from when she was in her 20s and first going out uh, to kind of observe chimps. And I think it's especially in this movie, there's something really wonderful about it because a lot of it was shot by the man who would become her first husband, Hugo Van Lewick, Lewick, I don't remember. Sorry, Hugo. Um, and uh, I think that especially like you can really sense that this footage is being shot by someone who is like falling in love with uh, the person that he's filming uh, in ways that are quite lovely. Uh, so that's Jane and it is streaming on Hulu. All right. How about two listener recommendations? Okay. These are from our winners. Navan Lincoln writes, I'd recommend the new Netflix doc series, Wild Wild Country, produced by the Duplass brothers. Growing up, my mother would sometimes mention the Rajneesh up in uh, Oregon in the 80s, but offer a few details. The series explores the insane story of the group, which includes land disputes, immigration, racism, group sex, unfortunate matching outfits, the founder of Nike, government spies, election law, and murder attempts. And unlike some Netflix doc series, it is well-paced, well-edited, and only six minutes long, or six episodes long, six minutes. Uh, strongly Wishful thinking, Allison. Wishful thinking. Yeah. Um, that one is definitely on my, my list and maybe will come up later in this episode. Uh, and then we also have a recommendation from John in Monterey, Massachusetts, who writes, the show I'm recommending is The Bureau, aka Le Bureau de Légion, from uh, Eric Rochant which is available on Amazon through Sundance Now, or available on Sundance Now, or you can purchase it on iTunes. Le Figaro called this the best TV series ever made in France. I can't remember ever watching a French TV series, so I don't know what the competition is like, but having seen season one, I can certainly see their argument. I'm about to start season two of the three seasons currently available. Apparently a fourth is in the works. The series, around, the series revolves around the agents of the DGSE, the French spy agency. The central character is Guillaume de Bailly, uh, played by the excellent Mathieu Kasovitz, who returns to Paris after six years of undercover deployment in Syria, where he had an affair with Syrian history, history professor Nadia Al-Mansour. He breaks up with her before leaving, but shortly after returning to Paris, he finds that she's in town with a Syrian delegation who are undertaking secret negotiations with Syrian rebels. Although it's strictly against protocol, 
He arranges to see her and their affair is rekindled. The Syrian security begin to suspect that Nadia is having an affair with a French spy. And Debailly is put in the position of having to resurrect his cover, to, cover identity as Paul Lefebvre in an attempt to allay their suspicions. He's now hiding his activities from his superiors at the spy agency, while at the same time hiding his identity from the Syrians. And it develops into a story of a man who is co- continually trying to fix the mess he made and continually making it worse, eventually involving the CIA and the Russians and and that's just the main plot. There are other fascinating, intertwining stories going on with other agents at the Bureau simultaneously. In some ways, it's reminiscent of MI5, though I found it more character-driven. And it's one long arc rather than being episodic. It felt more realistic to me as well. The acting is uniformly excellent. The direction is crisp and assured. For those who like their espionage deeply plotted and complex while delivering well-rounded, realistic characters, this series is a treat. Um, thank you for that, John. Mm. Definitely sold me. I had registered that that series had gone on Sundance now, but had not actually looked up much about it. And that sounds really interesting. Hmm. All right. Give me one film. Chosen bluntly. By number. From your. You give me number nine, and number nine, I think, is a, a movie that you would also probably enjoy. I wonder if it's on your my list. Let's see. It's a movie called Inconceivable. Mm. Do you know about this movie, Matt? I don't think I do. Okay. It is a surrogacy thriller. Okay. It stars Gina Gershon as Angela. Keep going. A woman who develops a friendship with a mysterious woman named Katie. I like it. Played by Nikki Whalen in a part that was originally supposed to go to Lindsay Lohan. Offers her a job as a living nanny. Uh, but then this soon becomes this dangerous oh, obsession. Oh, wait. Uh-huh. Mm. Uh, Katie gets attached to the family's young daughter. Yep. And then Angela and her husband, Brian, played by Nicolas Cage, realize that something's going on from within. Added bonus, Faye Dunaway plays Nicolas Cage's mother. Yeah, she's my mom. Yeah. Yeah. I cannot pretend this movie was well-received critically. It is inconceivable that it could have been yes, well-received critically. But does that combination of Gina Gershon, Nicolas Cage, and Faye Dunaway in a surrogacy thriller, does that make me want to watch it? Yes, it does. Yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, does. Added, I just added it. It's added. <laughs> Number one. So Number one on my my list now. Inconceivable. Oh, yeah. You can find it on oh, Netflix. Yeah. Nice. All right, Matt. Are you ready? Yes. Give me three new releases. All right. First up on Netflix. Let's get some more. Uh, uh, excuse me. First up on Filmstruck. I don't know what I'm saying. I haven't slept in four months. First up on Filmstruck, I wanted to get some more Filmstruck in here, is Adam's Rib from 1949. It's the sixth of nine films made by Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn, and of the ones I've seen, and I've seen five of them, this is my favorite. They play a married couple, both lawyers, who wind up arguing on opposite sides of a court case that involves the equality of the male and female sexes. Heppard and Tracy are one of my all-time favorite screen couples. Maybe not uh, Nick and Nora Charles good, but they're pretty darn good together. Mm-hmm. And they're really terrific in this movie. Filmstruck currently has six, six of the Tracy and Hepburn films. And again, this one is really, really great. It is Adam's Rib on Filmstruck. Next up on Hulu. I have Life Itself, the superb documentary from Hoop Dreams director Steve James about the life of film critic Roger Ebert. Even if you know Ebert's life story, even if you have read the memoir that the film is drawn from, this is still a powerful movie thanks to the archival footage of Ebert and his late partner Gene Siskel and of Ebert himself in his last days as he was fighting cancer. I actually have not watched this movie since it debuted. 
I haven't been able to bring myself to watch it again, but I feel like I should. Uh, could use a little Ebert inspiration these days, uh, a lot, actually. Uh, I think it's five years since he passed away coming up next month, which is kind of mind-boggling. So that is Life Itself, available on Hulu. Finally, also on Hulu, is Professor Marston and the Wonder Women. Last year's uh, biopic, unfortunately, very little seen, kind of like shockingly low box office numbers for this movie, if you look them up, about the life of the man who created Wonder Woman, played by Luke Evans, Professor Marston, and his unusual long-term polyamorous relationship with two women, his wife, played by Rebecca Hall, and another woman who was a former student of theirs, played by Bella Heathcote. And some of the reviews of this movie you know, we're not as positive. They felt like a movie that was about polyamorous relationships and, and treat, uh, menage a trois and people who enjoy bondage and role playing and all this sort of stuff that it needed to be a little, I don't know, kinkier or something that it was too vanilla. But I, I felt like that was kind of part of the point of the movie is that these people were vilified in their day. They were treated like outsiders and, and such. And that, uh, much much of the second half of the movie is barely even about the creation of Wonder Woman or the creation of the lie detector, which Professor Marston also helped create. Um, but it's about the prejudice they faced as a as a I can't say a couple, but as a a trio. And so making the film into this kind of mainstream esque glossy Hollywood style romance, a relationship film or biopic, I felt was sort of a deliberate choice to kind of show that these. This trio, these people were, you know, that they were just like anyone else and they're being treated in this movie just like anyone else would be treated, which I actually thought was kind of a, a nice message. So that is Professor Marston and the Wonder Women, which you can watch now on Hulu. Okay, give me two listener recommendations. All right. Our first here uh, comes from Patrick in Durham, North Carolina. Patrick writes, I want to recommend the series Bridget and Eamon, which has recently crossed my path through Hulu and Amazon Prime. It's a fast, absurd domestic comedy about a couple in 1980s Ireland. The shoe sees them, the show, excuse me, the show, it's a really big show, sees them becoming condom smugglers, running for local office, faking miracles, and even going out in the sun. It's full of thick Irish accents. So Americans like me may have to watch it a couple of times to absorb it all, but you'll want to watch it any time, many times for lines like, can a man not use the withdrawal method in his own home. My parents listen to this podcast. This is very uncomfortable. For oh, me sorry. Now. Sorry. Thanks a lot. Parents. Thanks a lot, Patrick in <laughs> Durham, North Carolina. Thank you. That is Bridget and Amen, which I guess is on Hulu and Amazon prime. Next up, a recommendation from Matt in Madison, Wisconsin. Matt writes, what a great name that is, by the way. <laughs> I wanted to give a strong recommendation for folks to check out Belladonna of Sadness, which was streaming on Amazon Prime at the time Matt wrote this, but is now streaming on Fandor and Shudder. It is a classic of Japanese animation from 1973, and it was recently given a spectacular restoration. The plot description reads as follows. An innocent young woman is violently raped by the local lord on her wedding night. To take revenge, she makes a pact with the devil who transforms her into a black-robed vision of madness and desire. The movie's visuals are a combination of slow pans over gorgeous watercolor paintings and lushly animated sequences that sometimes trip into acid-soaked delirium with an appropriately psychedelic score to match. 
Thematically, the film touches on some points regarding female sexuality and the perception of power therein that should resonate with contemporary viewers. I had the good fortune to catch this on the big screen, and it melted my brain. While the style and subject matter might be a little intense or strange for some, there were walkouts at the screening I attended. I would hope that most SVU listeners would find this to be an enjoyably wild ride. I'm sure my parents would love it. Okay, so that is Belladonna of Sadness, streaming now on Fandor and Shudder. Thank you for that recommendation, Matt, in Madison, Wisconsin. Okay, give me one from your Milus. You gave me number 11. And, well, now it's something else because I've already added Inconceivable. But at the time that I looked, number 11 was Ash versus the Evil Dead. This is the, I think, still ongoing uh, series from, I believe, Stars originally. Mm-hmm. It is the continuation of the Evil Dead saga starring Bruce Campbell back in his role as Ash from the original three films. And it's produced by Sam Raimi, who made the original films. I think he directed the first maybe one, maybe two episodes. I watched the first couple of episodes when they premiered. I thought it was great fun. I thought it was very faithful to the spirit of the movies. I just – I don't have stars. And so it took me uh, – I hadn't been able to catch up with it. And it was added a couple of months ago to Netflix, I think. And I popped it on there then. I actually have watched an episode or two since then. It's a great show. I really like it if I – didn't have children and jobs and responsibilities sure uh, i would definitely have watched the whole thing by now but alas alas i have all that uh, parenting and drinking and solving mysteries <laughs> to do so i will get to the rest of it eventually but uh in the meantime yeah it is ash versus evil dead that is on netflix we have a very eclectic batch of films and tv shows for our next listener's choice poll i have absolutely no idea what's gonna win this yeah time. i have no idea either uh, i have a feeling actually we'll see we'll see i'm not gonna i'm not gonna say don't don't spoil that it way I can clearly cl- if, i can claim to be right if i don't tell you well also it, it obviously doesn't matter what we think because last time we actually <laughs> both we both had a favorite we very strongly said this is what not just one person we both agreed yeah and our listeners resoundingly said, we don't care. I really appreciate that. They're like, this is our choice. They gave us the Tommy bums. Lee Jones and the Fugitive. I don't care. Mm, yeah. So, yeah. And honestly, with this trio, I'm, I'm interested in all three. I am too. So our first option, available on Hulu, is a film entitled Wolf Warrior 2. It's directed by Wu Jing, who's also the star of the film. And it's uh, mostly a Chinese cast with, do you know the American star in it? No. Frank Grillo. Oh, really? Yes, Frank Grillo is in the film. I'll read you the plot description. The film tells a story of a loose cannon Chinese soldier named Lang Fang who takes on special missions around the world. In this sequel, he finds himself in an African country protecting medical aid workers from local rebels and vicious arms dealers. I'm going to bet some money that Frank Grillo plays a vicious arms dealer. That's Probably. just a guess. but I'm I guess, yeah. And the reason this is of particular interest is this movie – Wolf Warrior 2 is the highest grossing Chinese film ever. This is a Chinese production and a massive, massive success. The first film was a big hit, and the second film was even bigger. And, uh, yeah, I mean, 
uh, Chinese films, some of these bigger productions, they're making more and more of these big blockbuster style productions that are doing very well in China and elsewhere internationally. Yeah. And, and so it's also supposed to be super nationalist. And it was also the Chinese uh, submission for the Academy Awards, which feels a bit like a, an F you to the Academy <laughs> Awards to be like, <laughs> you know what we're going to submit? A sequel that is a massive blockbuster. Right. Yeah. But so it seems like this is kind of a, uh, a attention must be paid, but also a real curiosity factor to see this movie that was such a huge hit and to look at it, see how it looks, see what we think about it. I think that would be very interesting. And we could maybe also – we could do maybe like recent Chinese blockbusters because yeah, a there, lot of them are available are online. And uh, – a lot of them, the theatrical releases they get in the U.S. are mostly aimed at kind of Chinese diaspora uh, audiences right. and not marketed. So you wouldn't even know that they are around. But, but they, they are, are giant movies. Huge. Yes. And, and, a, and a lot of them are now available on, on streaming services. The other thing is, like Frank Grillo, a lot of them star like one or two American stars. So that'd be kind of fun, too, to see like who pops sure. up in this movie or that movie as well. So that's option number one, Wolf Warrior 2, available on Hulu. Option number two is a docu-series that we've mentioned earlier in the episode. It's Wild Wild Country on Netflix. Netflix original documentary series uh, based on a controversial Indian guru who uh, tries to set up a community in Oregon, starts clashing with the locals, and then as, you know... Uh, a lot of different themes come up in this. It's directed by the Way Brothers and produced by the Duplass Brothers. So I don't know what to make of that other than <laughs> that brother teams seem to have like a really disproportionate amount of success in yeah. film and television. <laughs> Did we ever do a brother filmmaker we pairing? Could, we could. We should absolutely do that. Okay. Uh, we could do a brother themed episode, brother filmmaker episode. Okay. Yeah. But um, this is also a series that uh, was one that, uh, you know, was released on Netflix on March 16th. And I've kind of just seen it building an audience. Starting to percolate. A lot of people uh, on Twitter have tweeted about it. Yes. That it's, uh, it's a well-made film that just covers a lot of really interesting subject matter. Yes. So I would be curious to see that. Yes. Um, and have a good excuse to watch it of yep. the, before Netflix releases, like probably since a hundred more things, a hundred new yes. series and films. The t- they're the Takashi Miike of uh, streaming right. services. Exactly. They're very prolific. <laughs> very prolific. Yes. Um, so that's your second option. Wild, wild country. It is streaming on Netflix. Okay. Option number three, also on Netflix is the smash, <laughs> smash hit, uh, art house film, Tulip Fever. Directed by Justin Chadwick, starring Alicia Vikander, Dane DeHaan, and <laughs> Zach Galifianakis. What a cast! During the Dutch tulip mania, which is a thing, a historical thing. Sure. Tulip mania, tulip fever. It was a real thing. Look it up. Love blooms. I didn't write it. This is what Netflix says. Love blooms between a wealthy merchant's wife and a painter, but their future together hinges on a risky bet. And uh, I guess this film will probably go down in history or perhaps infamy as basically like the last Weinstein Company movie. It is. It is. I, I mean, you know, even if the Weinstein Company has like gone bankrupt, I believe. Right? Yeah. But also like if any aspect of it survives to kind of – it's going to be rebranded and renamed anyway. Right. So that's it. The Weinstein Company. This was the farewell I mean, they it's had actually, other like, movies like Paddington 2, which right. wound up be coming out they from a different theater off. and right. a studio, excuse me. And I, I guess they had The Current War, which still hasn't come out. Does anyone bought that yet? I don't know. But they, it, it has some, uh, at least like those titles kind of flopping around in, you know, 
who knows what right. will happen to but them. But regardless, this was like the last movie actually released by the actual Weinstein Company. Yes. And so I think that gives it a, a real uh, currency to discuss. We could do a Weinstein Company uh, show. Sure. Maybe it might be interesting also to just even look, you know, Harvey Weinstein, when all of the kind of like horrible facts of his kind of uh, treatment of actresses and women he worked with and then also people in general kind of came to light uh yeah after uh all of these report reporting started happening uh i think there was a lot of kind of talk about what he did in independent film but i think that it might be good to also talk about he was like famous for fighting with directors and cutting things and like shelving things including this movie including this movie and so i think it might be interesting to also go look at some of the the films that he didn't treat well if shelved or or cut His, against the will of the filmmakers yes it'd be hard to recommend movies in that context because so many of them he meddled meddled with in sure, a negative way but i think that like some of them are also available uh you know like not oh, in the untouched version yeah like I, I think like he you know made shell and soccer be dubbed if i'm remembering that correctly yes. and you don't you know you don't have to see that but i i you know i think that like uh, it's an interesting topic yeah certainly for someone who you know like definitely was a huge force in independent film he mm. was not viewed always as uh both the champion and yeah. the destroyer of, uh, of independent of, films. Of films yeah yeah so that is your third option yes tulip, tulip fever on netflix okay so it's up to you now tell us which of these streaming options we should review on the next episode uh you can do that by voting in the poll that's at the bottom of the page over at filmspottingsvu.com we'll also post links to that poll on our social media feeds we're on facebook and twitter at filmspottingsvu you've got until monday april 2nd at noon to vote uh that's when we'll announce the winner it gives you about a week if you want to watch it in advance before our next episode comes out on Tuesday, April 10th. In addition to being able to vote at filmspottingsvu.com, that's also where you can find our episode archive, complete with links to where you can stream or rent all the titles we mention on the show. The Film Spotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. Find more of Vince's work at vincevandal.bandcamp.com. We'll be back in two weeks with more recommendations and the movie or TV review you pick. Until then, you can always find us both on Twitter at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And you should definitely follow the show at Filmspotting SVU, where we drop links throughout the day to things that are new to streaming that you might want to know about. For Filmspotting SVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.